before we begin, I just wanted to make a few uh, books known to you that speak to our subject. If you're interested in, in studying more, learning more, um, there's a, a few wonderful books on the, the theme that we've explored last week and now that we will be uh, exploring this morning as well. Uh, the first is called Money, Debt, and Finance. It's by Jim Newhouser. It's an excellent book, very practical, very clear. Uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn, also an excellent book, very practical, very clear. And this one's a little more academic, but it's also, uh, it just does a, a biblical theology of the subject of, of money and wealth and possessions uh, throughout the entirety of the Bible. It's called Neither Poverty Nor Riches by Craig Blomberg. Uh, so if you want to learn more about those, I'd love to talk with you afterward, but wanted to make those known to you uh, this morning. Uh, well, I wanted to begin this morning by quoting uh, the immortal words of one of the preeminent poets of my childhood days, in the words of Biggie Smalls, mo money, mo problems, right? Yeah. Yes. Wow, I did not expect that reaction. Uh, well, last week, we, uh, we did our first installment um, on a two-part sermon on on wisdom for wealth in the book of Proverbs, as we've been going through Proverbs this summer. And in it, we saw that Proverbs, uh, perhaps to our surprise, actually speaks rather positively to us about possessing and pursuing material wealth. Uh, in many ways, it, it tells us that wealth is a, is a beneficial blessing from the Lord and that it's even one worth pursuing in some measure. And yet, if, if we're going to keep an open heart before the book of Proverbs here, we'd see that that's not actually all Proverbs would say to us about the matter. Uh, Proverbs will, will indeed show us that the notorious B.I.G. was not altogether misguided in his 1997 hit. Um, an increase of money can often present an increase of problems in one's life. And some of them, most importantly to us, are spiritual and eternal in nature, which as God's people who live in a very financially prosperous time and place, we ought to be aware of. Uh, John Wesley, just like Biggie Smalls, likewise once gave a thought-provoking take on the matter. He once wrote this, that wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural course of things must beget riches. And riches naturally beget pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of Christianity. Now, if there be no way to prevent this, Christianity is not consistent with itself and of consequence cannot stand, cannot continue long among any people since where it generally prevails, it saps its own foundation. In other words, Wesley is saying there that wherever Christianity spreads, it transforms people, right? The gospel changes people and wherever the gospel changes people, some of the fruit that you see is that people grow as those who work hard and work diligently. You might recall that from Pastor Dan's sermon on work uh, from a few weeks ago. But, but furthermore, you, people don't just start working hard. They also begin to live lives that are simple and they seek to wisely steward what God has given them in order to glorify God with their wealth. And when that happens, oftentimes people become more wealthy. Not always, of course. There are plenty of exceptions to that. But if all things go as they should, normally, ordinarily, working hard and wise stewardship begets riches, as Wesley puts it. But there's also a problem here because riches, if we're left to ourselves and to our fallen human nature, riches tend to lure us into loves and lifestyles that are destructive to Christianity. And so if these two things are true, 
He says, well, Christianity can't stand, not for long anyways. Unless that is, there's some way, there's some way that God might help and protect and equip us as his people that would prevent this from taking place. And friends, I'm convinced that Proverbs is a treasure chest that holds such help. If we'll listen to the words of this book and have it applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit's power, our Christianity can indeed stand. And so if you would stand with me now for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God this morning. In Proverbs 11, or uh, yeah, Proverbs 11, verse 4. And I don't think I told you what our text was. It's Proverbs 11, verse 4. Proverbs 11, verse 4. Which is written by the pen of Solomon, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it says this. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you have the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. And be seated. Well, this is our 19th sermon in Proverbs so far. And uh, as I just mentioned, part two of Proverbs, Wisdom for Wealth. Last week, we addressed the subject of wealth from a more positive perspective, right? Proverbs has much good to say about possessing and pursuing wealth. Riches are not inherently viewed as a bad thing in Proverbs, and we're even given practical counsel regarding how we might pursue them. But on the other hand, as a book of wisdom, Proverbs will often present to us multiple forms of counsel, multiple perspectives of counsel on any given subject that much of the time has to be held in proper tension. And it it can sometimes make some of us uncomfortable. Uh, Perhaps one of the clearest examples of this in Proverbs is Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. And they're back-to-back verses. They say, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him yourself. And then immediately after, it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so you just read that and you go, so should we answer a fool according to his folly or not? And the answer is it just depends. It just depends. Well, similarly, Proverbs has many positive things to say about the possession and pursuit of wealth. It also has, it it speaks to the perils about the same. And our endeavor this morning is to understand what those might be. Our home-based text this morning is obviously Proverbs 11.4, and here we see what we know now to be an antithetical parallelism. Uh, It's a parallelism, a two-line proverb, but it's also an antithetical parallelism in that the two lines offer uh, kind of contrasting ways, two different ways of living and approaching death and judgment and wealth and riches and righteousness. And, and just as we have been doing, we're going to look at this text as our kind of home-based text this morning, but we're also at the same time going to take lots of trips to other Proverbs throughout the book as a whole in order to get a sense of what the book as a whole has to say about our subject, which of course this morning is wealth. And what Proverbs will show us this morning is something of the deficiency of wealth, the dangers of wealth, and the duties of wealth. First, though, look with me at the deficiency of wealth. Wisdom would tell us that in the grand scheme of things, riches, wealth, they might be a blessing, as we saw last week. 
They might be helpful in some regard. They might be worth pursuing in some measure. But at the end of the day, ultimately speaking, in myriad ways, they are an insufficient good. It's Jim Carrey who once said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they might, not, so that they might see that it's not the answer. And the wisdom of Solomon and his fellow Authors in Proverbs would, would agree. Yes, Proverbs, well, on the one hand, say that worldly wealth is indeed a good gift and a beneficial blessing from the Lord, but in order to keep us from those tempers that are destructive to Christianity, as Wesley put it, Proverbs will also tell us about the limitations of worldly wealth. And often, one of the ways it, it, it will often do this is by way of comparison, okay? So it, it'll show us the deficiency of wealth by comparing it to things that are actually more valuable, for example, Proverbs 16, 16 says, how much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. You see there, wisdom is better than wealth. It's, it's worth pursuing with more energy, more attention, more vigor, more intention than wealth is worth pursuing. Proverbs 15, 6, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble with it. Of course, it follows that if Wisdom is better than riches. Then the fear of the Lord must be also, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs has told us. Fearing the Lord, reverent awe toward Him as the God of your life, that is far better than earthly treasure. Proverbs 28.6 says, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who's crooked in his ways. Being a person of integrity, being a person of, of consistently Godly character and virtue, that's better than being a wealthy person. Proverbs 31.10 would tell us that an excellent wife is far more precious than jewels. Finding an excellent, godly, generous wife, that Proverbs 31 woman described there, that's better than making money. Proverbs 17.1 says, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. In other words, a peaceable household is better than one with abundant provisions. Proverbs 22.1 even says that a good reputation, a good name, is to be chosen rather than great riches. There are many good things in life and in the world that are superior to worldly wealth. And Proverbs 11.4 tells us this morning that righteousness is one of those things. Righteousness, being a, a person of uprightness, being a person who lives with others in a wise and just and generous way, being one who fears and knows and trusts God. Righteousness is more valuable than riches. And why is that? Well, because riches, they're not going to benefit you in the day of judgment and wrath, but righteousness will. The whole of the Bible clearly teaches that all of us are headed for a day of final judgment, a day in which the world as we know it will come to its conclusion. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks about that day when he's preaching in Acts 17.31. He says this, he says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says that, that day of wrath, that day of judgment is most assuredly coming. And you can know that it is, Paul says, because Christ's resurrection is a sure sign that it is. It'll be a day of wrath and destruction. And when it comes, the, the deficiency of riches and wealth and power will be fully known and felt and exposed. Revelation 6, 15 to 17 describes it. 
It says this, it says then, in, in that day, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Right? What will riches be in that day? In the presence of the tremendous one. On that day, the the number in a bank account will seem utterly worthless to us. Perhaps we should be abundantly clear as well. We very well might meet with this day of judgment before that day of wrath. The Bible also speaks to the reality that that we will meet with judgment from the Lord immediately after death. Hebrews 9.27 tells us it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The chances are one day you're going to die, Right? And it could be this afternoon. No one's promised tomorrow. It could be at any point. And, the, and that reality should drive home for us the deficiency of riches. It was John Piper who, who once illustrated this rather well. He invites us to picture 269 people entering eternity in a plane crash in the Sea of Japan. This is before the crash. There, there's a noted politician, a millionaire corporate executive, a playboy a missionary kid on his way back from visiting grandparents. And after the crash, they stand before God, stripped of master cards, wallets, credit lines, designer clothes, how to succeed books, hotel reservations. Here are the politician, the executive, the playboy, and the missionary kid, all on ground level with nothing, absolutely nothing in their hands possessing only what they brought in their hearts. How absurd and tragic the lover of money will seem on that day, like a man who spends his whole life collecting train tickets and in the end is so weighed down by the collection he misses the last train. Friends, feel the deficiency of wealth in light of judgment and eternity. We're called as Christians to live in light of that day, to keep our eyes on that day, even while we live life in this present age, and to thereby let that day inform and shape and transform our lives in the present. And if we do, one of the things that is so undeniable is the deficiency of wealth. But then moving on, wealth will not only be seen to be deficient in that day, For some, wealth will also have been a detriment in that day. Because wealth not only carries inherent deficiency in light of eternity, it also brings all sorts of dangers along with it in light of eternity. So we look at the dangers of wealth. The possession of much wealth also brings with it myriad dangerous temptations to sin and wickedness and folly. And perhaps perhaps we should be clear about this for just a moment. On its own, It's not a dangerous thing in and of itself. What's dangerous are the sinful proclivities of our hearts. Jesus would remind us in Matthew 15, 9, that sin proceeds from the human heart, not from the human wallet, right? And yet, on the other hand, riches often 
just serve to give expression to and enticement to sin and wickedness and all sorts of dangers. It's a breeding ground of temptation. It often makes repentance from greed and materialism all the more difficult. It makes us often like a frog in the kettle when it comes to worldliness and sin. During the days of the Iron Curtain, there was a a persecuted Romanian pastor who once said, in my experience, 95% of believers who face the test of persecution pass it, while 95% who face the test of prosperity fail it. He's saying that oftentimes the test of poverty and persecution is less dangerous for us in light of eternity than the test of prosperity. Or just to echo Wesley earlier, Riches naturally beget pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive to Christianity. And so even while we rightly consider wealth a blessing in some respect, Proverbs will also warn us about the dangers often associated with it. What are some of those dangers? Well, for one, a major danger associated with having too much wealth is is the danger of distraction. Perhaps you can see that in Proverbs 11.4. This this verse seeks to draw our attention to the day of wrath and what our riches will amount to on that day, and it draws our attention to that day because wealth has a way of distracting us from that day. It has a way of calling our attention away from ultimate and eternal things and toward superficial, temporal things. Jesus tells a story that drives this very point home for us in Luke 12, 16 to 21, where this, this man, he, he produces abundant, his land produces abundant fruitfulness. And so his attention begins to be overly preoccupied with securing and saving up all of this wealth and living this comfortable life. He builds more and larger barns in order to save up and store more self. And he says to himself after building these barns, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's what he says to himself. Jesus says something entirely different. He says, you fool. This night is your soul required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Right? Wealth can be dangerous because it can be a distraction from ultimate and eternal things. Don't let the superficial and temporal distract you from the ultimate and the eternal. The next, Proverbs would also warn us against the danger of greed. Wealth, particularly in abundance of it, is a breeding ground of temptation to greed. And we should say, of course, those who are not rich can also be greedy. No socioeconomic bracket has the corner on greed, to be sure. And yet, at the same time, the more riches, the more opportunity for expressing greed, the stronger the enticement to it. And greed is a a particularly deceitful and devious danger. In my several years in ministry and as a pastor, I've, I've had people confess all sorts of sins to me. Sins of lust. Adultery, substance abuse, gossip, anger, pride. I've never had anyone confess to me the sin of greed. And yet, 
the Bible seems to address the sin of greed quite a lot and with a great deal of seriousness. In fact, it addresses it perhaps more than most other sins. Jesus himself seemed to teach particularly much about it. And that just makes me wonder if perhaps more of us are caught in its snares than we even know. Which is frightening because Proverbs would offer us sobering warnings against the unique destructiveness of it. Perhaps you remember, if you were with us, we looked at Proverbs 1. We looked at Proverbs 1, verses 18 and 19. We saw a warning against joining a greedy gang, right? This, this ruthless gang driven by their outsized love of money and material things. And Solomon warned us there that these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Greed, he says, will eventually destroy those who succumb to it. If not in this age, then certainly in the age to come, as our text tells us, in that day of wrath. And not only does, does greed ruin individuals, it ruins families, households. Proverbs 15, 27 says, the greedy bring ruin to their households. Greed will eventually wreck lives and households. Greed will lead us to, instead of enjoying wealth as a blessing with no sorrow added to it, as we saw last week. As we saw last week, it will lead to all those sorrows we mentioned. Sorrows of anxiety, guilt, fear, torment, grief, and if not repented of, it will lead to ruination in the day of coming wrath. Right? It's not for nothing that the Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 6.10, saying that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Right? We need to be aware of this, friends. If, if our Christianity is to last, we need to measure ourselves against the Word of God and search our hearts and see if there's any disordered desires therein that would eventually pierce us with many pangs. This is a serious and sobering danger. Then distraction and greed, they're not the only dangers. Arrogance is another one. In Ezekiel 28.5, the prophet rebukes the king of Tyre. He says to him, by your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth. And if you just stop there, Proverbs might say, good for you. But there's a danger here as well. And your heart has become proud in your wealth. Not good for you. You can become proud and arrogant in your wealth. Proverbs 18.11 would confirm this. It tells us that a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. And then the very next verse warns as well, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. Right? Wealth can make you haughty. It can make you proud and arrogant. It can make you think you're untouchable. It can make you delusional. It can make you think that you're better than others. It can make you think that, that you don't need God. You don't need grace. You don't need to rely on him and depend on him. It can make you arrogant. And for that reason, perhaps the prayer we find in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, is one we should make our own. It's the only prayer in all of Proverbs. It seems significant. It's prayed by Agur, who wisely begs the Lord, saying, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, 
lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He's asking God to, to keep him from poverty. And rightly so, because poverty comes with its own sorts of dangers. But it, he also, he's also alert to the danger of arrogance that can result from the, the possession of great and abundance wealth. He's in tune with his own weakness and proclivity towards such arrogance. And so he asks the Lord to limit his potential income. He seems to, to know so just that arrogance is a danger we need to watch out for. Another danger Proverbs would warn us about is the danger of overwork. Right? On the whole, Proverbs, we've already seen this, it commends and praises the hard worker. It often warns against the, being a sluggard and the folly of laziness. And yet we, we shouldn't misread those emphases and wrongly think that overworking is not also a danger for us. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 would counsel us saying, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Again, working hard is good. But, but do not toil, it says. That, that word translated as toil there means to like overwork yourself into needless weariness. Right? If, if your work is causing problems with your health, if it's interfering consistently with sleep, time with family, time with your church, if you're consistently working yourself into a state of utter exhaustion in pursuit of worldly wealth, then Proverbs says, be wise enough to desist. Because those riches that you're working for do not last. They are a fickle thing. You very well might lose them in this age. And of course, we've already seen their worthlessness in the, way, in the age to come. So be alert, be aware of the danger of overwork. And lastly, Proverbs would alert us to the danger of temptations to commit injustice. And when it comes to acquiring wealth, if we grow greedy and love money, and become proud and arrogant in possession of it, will be all the more likely to commit grievous sins in pursuit of getting and keeping wealth. And what does Proverbs have to say about that? Well, it, it warns us by, by telling us about the Lord's great displeasure with this. Proverbs 20.10 says, Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Right, Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. In other words, the Lord finds dishonesty, cheating, and oppressing others in pursuit of wealth to be a disgusting, revolting thing. Right? He, he is a God who delights in justice, in honesty, in integrity. He, he is a God because he's a God of justice. There will one day be a day of wrath where he will right all wrongs and give each his due and committing injustices in order to gain worldly wealth will not profit in that day. As Christians, therefore, we, we ought to endeavor to be honest in all of our financial and business dealings. If we sell things, we sell them at a fair price. We don't bend the truth to make a deal sound sweeter. If we sell a car, a house, a product, a service, we tell the whole truth about the matter 
So it's to not take advantage of others in our dealings. If we have to track our hours for our employer, we give an, an honest account of our work. In other words, we ought not let the danger of greed and money, love, and pride grip our hearts and lead us into the further dangers of injustice and dishonesty in effort to acquire wealth. There are dangers associated with possessing and pursuing wealth, and so we need to be on guard here. Then moving on to our last point, one one of the ways that we can actively guard ourselves from wealth's dangers is by engaging in wealth's duties. One of the ways we can guard ourselves from those those tempers that are destructive to Christianity is by engaging in these duties that the Bible gives us in relation to our wealth. Look with me lastly at the duties of wealth. When we experience God's financial provision, Proverbs shows us that there are certain expectations laid upon us as God's people. Right? And this makes sense when we remember what we looked at last week, that wealth, that financial provision is actually ultimately a blessing from the Lord. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who upholds all the universe by the word of his power. Everything that we own actually ultimately belongs to him. It's his, and we are therefore temporary stewards of what actually belongs to God. And so it's worth asking then, when we experience an abundance of financial material resources, if God's the one who provides it all, then we might ask, why? Why do some of us sometimes experience an abundance of means? And thankfully, we actually don't need to wonder too much about this because 2 Corinthians 8.14 tells us precisely why some of us have an abundance of resources. It's so that we can bless others and be generous. And and that's very general, right? This is just generally true. God provides for us, sometimes abundantly He gives to us so that we can be generous to our families and to the church and to the cause of missions and to various worthy causes in the world, the Bible makes this abundantly clear. Christians are givers. That's just what we do. That's just who we are. But Proverbs as a whole really highlights one particular area of generosity, and that's the Christian's generosity to the poor. Generosity to those who are in need. Proverbs 14.31 shows us this when it says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Right? Notice there, that's an antithetical parallelism. And it shows us that the opposite of oppressing a poor man is not just leaving him alone. It's not a live and let live kind of thing. It's not being indifferent to him. It's being generous to him. And when a believer, it says, is generous to someone in need, it says that the Lord is honored. The the Lord, he takes the believer's generosity to those in need as being an act of worship and honor to himself. And and so as those who love the Lord and fear the Lord and trust the Lord and treasure the Lord, doesn't that just make us want to be generous to those who are in need in our desire that God be glorified by us? Proverbs 19.17 goes even further, saying that whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Indeed, this this is surprising. The, The Lord sees generosity to those in need as if he were the one in need and you were lending to him. And he says that because it's true, 
the Lord will repay those who are generous to him. In other words, what, what Proverbs, part of what Proverbs is showing us is that the reason the Lord blesses us with earthly riches is so that, so that we might be rich in good works, rich in generosity, rich in blessing others, others with what the Lord has blessed us with, specifically to those who are themselves in the state of lack and need and poverty. Now, let's just get this out there right now. Because I know that when we start talking about generosity to those in need and those in poverty, when we start talking about these kinds of things, we're talking about deeply complex and massively huge problems. It's complicated. And we can so quickly start thinking on a, a systemic or national or global scale on the one hand, and Proverbs will speak to that. It really does. But when we're talking about just us as individual Christians and as families and as a church, when we start talking about this, it can seem so abstract on the one hand, or it can start to feel overwhelming for just one person or one household or one church to think about, especially in an age of globalization and information and technology. All of us are exposed every single day to masses of problems throughout the entirety of the world that are worthy of attention and prayer and finances and generosity. Every single day we're exposed to such things. And it can be incredibly overwhelming to hear something like what I'm telling you now when you have all of those things in mind, that we possess responsibility to care for those who find themselves in need and lack and scarcity. You might start to think about all the insurmountable problems of poverty and scarcity and lack facing our world today. And just feel so overwhelmed, so discouraged at the thought that you give up before you even begin. As Randy Alcorn once put it, he says, just because I can't take care of all the world's poor doesn't mean I can't help or I can't begin by helping one, then two, then five, ten, and so on. The logic that says I can't do everything, so I won't do anything, is from the pit of hell. And so maybe we can just think about this on a little bit of a smaller scale for just a few moments. And what's more is that the scriptures actually give us, a, give us wise and helpful counsel in directing our generosity and good works in this front. Galatians 6.10, the Apostle Paul writes, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You, you, can, you can see an order of priority there, right? When it comes to helping those in need and lack and poverty, what should we do then? Well, first priority, those who are of the household of faith those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ that are also in a state of need and lack. They, they are our first priority in generosity toward those in need. Particularly, we should say, those within our own local church. Well, just naturally, they would require our attention and most immediate care, wouldn't they? Our church's covenant speaks to this very matter, doesn't it? And it speaks to this matter Precisely because the Bible does. When you think about the first church, the first new covenant church in Jerusalem there in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Acts 4.34 says that there was not a needy person among them. Right? Not one person among them went without their basic necessities. And we should say the, true, the, the, the same ought to be true of every local church. As, as long as those among us find themselves in need, as long as they're willing to make their needs known, and as long as they're legitimate needs, they ought to be met by us. 
There ought to be no needy among us as a local church who are members of our local church. You might also notice in the New Testament that there's also an obligation we have to help brothers and sisters in Christ who live in different cities and nations and locations. And I actually mentioned 2 Corinthians 8 earlier. Right, well, if you read that whole chapter there, you see the Apostle Paul is actually writing to encourage the church in Corinth to raise and give and send money to needy saints in Jerusalem because of a, a great famine that afflicted that city later after Acts 2 and 4. We have an obligation when able to help care for and support brothers and sisters across the world with our wealth when they are in need. And perhaps we should say that there's a particular call on wealthy Western Christians in these kinds of endeavors. If you were to read that, that book by Craig Blomberg, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, he points out on the subject that Americans, we spend five times more on our pets than we do on overseas Protestant ministries. We spend 20 times more on sporting activities. We spend a staggering 140 times more on legalized gambling activities, which is astounding. And I might point out here, I'm speaking to members of our church particularly here, that when you give to your church, you're actually giving to these kinds of ministries, among other things. Right? We, we, we have an emergency assistance fund that helps care for and provide for members and attenders of our church when they find themselves in times of need. We, we budget every year for that. Your, your generosity helps ensure that the needs of your brothers and sisters and fellow saints at Veritas are met. And in, in addition to that, we budget every year to give to various worthy ministries, both near and far, and budget season is coming up, so... We need your voice and your, your help and your attention for that. Now, last year around this time, we had the privilege of, of sending a, a one-time uh, generous gift to a fellow Harbor Network church in Fort Myers, Florida, after the, the devastating hurricane that hit that area. And so I suppose what I'm saying is that in many ways, Veritas, you're actually already doing much of what I'm talking about here. But as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, well, I don't need to necessarily tell you to start doing all these kinds of things. Let me encourage you to do this more and more as you have opportunity. Which brings us to the second priority in Paul's admonition in Galatians 6.10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. As you have opportunity, do good to everyone. That is to say, do good to those outside of the household of faith. That doesn't mean you need to give to every single cause and every single need and help solve every single problem you might see on social media or whatever. But this admonition does give us reason to ask ourselves, by God's providence, what kind of opportunities do I have to do good to my neighbors and fellow image bearers who find themselves in need? Who are the people God has providentially put in my life that find themselves in need? What kind of help am I able to offer them? What kind of gifts and resources do I possess that I personally can leverage in an effort to bless others? These are the kinds of questions Christians ask themselves because really this is just who we are in Christ. Right? It was Charles Spurgeon who once so eloquently spoke to this when he said that if there were nowhere else a heart that had sympathy for the needy, there should be one found in every Christian breast. To me, a follower of Jesus means a friend of man. A Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by a force of grace. 
wide as the reign of sorrow is the stretch of his love, and where he cannot help, he pities still. See, that is who we are as Christians. We are philanthropists by profession and generous by a force of grace. Our, our love stretches as wide as the sorrows of our fellow creatures, and the sympathy of our hearts belongs to all who suffer. And the reason for that is, friends, because you see, we know that when we come face to face with those who are poor, those who are in need, those who are impoverished, in all reality, we're looking into a mirror. We're looking at ourselves. Because in all reality, spiritually, every single one of us stands in a state of complete need and utter deprivation before our God. And yet as those who are poor and needy and impoverished, what have we met with from him except immeasurable generosity and lavish grace in the Lord Jesus Christ? Again, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, the apostle Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, the one who in eternity past knew nothing but the riches of heaven, who knew nothing except heaven's perfections and pleasures and praises, the one who for eternity past delighted in this, this fellowship with his father, he came to us and took upon himself our flesh and our weakness and our need, and above all, he took upon himself our sin and the death we deserve because of it on the cross. And he went to the cross, not, not as a vain expression of love, but in order to accomplish something for us there, to accomplish our salvation, our rescue, to lavish upon us the riches of God's wonderful love and grace. You see, in his cross, he accomplished our justification. That is, in him, we are declared righteous and covered with the very righteousness of Christ so that on the last day, on the day of wrath, we will actually stand before God with the perfect righteousness of Christ before our God and Father. But then not only that, he, he also purchased our sanctification as well. So then not only do we have freedom from sin's penalty as if that weren't enough, but we by his grace, have growing freedom from sin's power in this present age as he is gradually setting us more and more free from worldliness and wickedness, from arrogance and greed and injustice. He's gradually growing us to become more like himself in his generosity and goodness and big-heartedness. And so I want you to see this morning that the primary and most important way, friends, that we can be protected and guarded from pride in love of the world, and every temper that is destructive to Christianity is to, yes, recognize the deficiency of wealth. And yes, to be on guard against the dangers of wealth. And yes, to engage in the duties of wealth. But most of all, and before all, most importantly, we ought to remember and behold and preach to ourselves by the Spirit's power this gospel, this grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Without him, we're, we're powerless to recognize wealth's deficiency. We're, we're powerless to withstand wealth's dangers, but with his gospel 
and bite alone, our Christianity will stand. And in it, we will stand in the last day on the day of judgment with joy and confidence because we wear a perfect righteousness, not our own. And we will inherit eternal riches from the God and Father who has rescued us. In the day of wrath, riches will not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the table, would you seal this word upon our hearts? And would you cause the reality of of Christ's goodness and grace and leaving the riches of glory and coming and putting on poverty so that we, my as poverty, might become rich. Would you press that reality all the more deeply into our hearts so that we might go from here armed to face this world of danger. We might be armed to face all of wealth's coming dangers and temptations, that we might be armed with the truth to recognize this deficiency and to thereby treasure most and before all what is eternal, what is ultimate, and what belongs to Christ. We pray for your glory and in his name, amen.